0: Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Pastor Heath Bauer is taking us on a journey through 14 characteristics to being a healthy church. In this episode, we are winding down our series on unity. Today's talk is titled, It's My Pleasure. These are lessons learned from Chick-fil-A. If you're in the Ashland area or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around to the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church.
1: Go ahead and open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. This is the third and the last part of a three-part series on church unity. Remember, we're talking about the 14 characteristics of a healthy church as we observe that God specifically recorded all the things that the early church did. And we're making application where we can uh, to the church today as to how we can be a healthy church, one that is blessed of God And one of the things that we saw in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, it talked about that they they had glad and generous hearts. And it says that they had favor with all the people. We mentioned last week that meant that they operated as one. They were a single body. That they all, if you will, the central nervous system of God flowed through all the church so that the head is Jesus and all of us as body parts were all moving together in tandem to do something together. So we thought and we acted as a single body, not a bunch of factious little individuals, but as a single body. This last week we spoke on uh, Culver's, so I think it's only fair that we talk about Chick-fil-A this week. So evidently this is the series uh, on fast food restaurants and uh, good food and service. So Chick-fil-A, why do you go to Chick-fil-A? I mean, you, yeah, their chicken sandwich is good, arguably. It's one of the best chicken sandwiches out there. But you can get a chicken sandwich and even decent ones in a lot of different places, can't you? I mean, when you go to Chick-fil-A, you've already bypassed, you know, Burger King, McDonald's, Arby's, Sonic, every... I mean, I can't think of a restaurant to my knowledge, that doesn't in some way or another serve a chicken sandwich. You can get that chicken sandwich, uh, maybe not the exact one, but you can get a good chicken sandwich in a lot of places. But you go to Chick-fil-A. Why? I would argue that it's not just the chicken sandwich. It's not just the waffle fries. It's not just the sweet tea. Anybody hungry yet? It's not time for lunch yet. You can get that a lot of different places. What is it that sets Chick-fil-A so much further apart from all these other chicken chains and all these other restaurants that you could go to for lunch, I would argue that it's their service. When you go to, when you, go to, you know, one of these other, let's just say a lesser uh, known or a lesser fast food restaurant, and you go to order and somebody just standing there giving you the half eye, yeah, what do you want? You know, you can get that anywhere. And you get in there like, fine, I'll just get my food and leave. And you eat in misery and it's raining outside and Okay, but when you go to Chick-fil-A, what happens? I mean, it's like the clouds roll away, the sun is shining, because no matter how rude you might choose to be to that Chick-fil-A person, what are they always going to tell you? You've been to Chick-fil-A. It's my pleasure. That's what they say. That's what they're trained to say. By the way, do you know where that came from, that phrase, why Chick-fil-A says that, and every last Chick-fil-A person says that phrase? Legend has it that the founder, Truett Cathy... Um, was visiting a Ritz-Carlton. Evidently, he was doing pretty well at the time. And so he was at the Ritz-Carlton. He, wondered, he was just wondering, why do I enjoy my time here so much? Is it the comfortable beds? Is it the nice decor that I'm enjoying here? And it really came down to their service, their impeccable service. No matter who it was, it doesn't matter if it's housekeeping, janitorial, or the front desk, whenever he was at the Ritz-Carlton and he would ask for something, and they would always respond with, it's my pleasure. And he says it just so profoundly impacted his heart that he decided to import that into all of his Chick-fil-A restaurants. And so he has chosen to give everybody Ritz-Carlton service at a Chick-fil-A price. And that's one of the reasons why we love Chick-fil-A so much. It's my pleasure is an outgrowth of their entire corporate ethos. It's an outgrowth of their whole corporate mission statement. I want to read it for you. This is Chick-fil-A's mission statement to glorify God by being faithful students of all that is entrusted to us and being a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A isn't just a chicken chain. It's an opportunity for ministry. They see me selling you a chicken sandwich as a way to glorify God. They see giving you waffle fries with good service as a way to positively impact the community for Jesus. My thought is, if Chick-fil-A is willing to treat people with that same kind of love, kindness, and service to even the rudest of the customers that come in, how much more should the church give that kind of service to people when we're not giving out chicken sandwiches, we're giving out the gospel? We've got to be an it's my pleasure kind of church. When people walk through these doors at Unity Baptist Church, they need to know that consistently… The people in the church are it's my pleasure kind of people. Have you ever been to a Chick-fil-A that had a rude worker? If you have, I bet you can count them on one hand ever in your lifetime. Every last person at Chick-fil-A is highly trained to be this way. And as a church, we can't be any different. All it takes is for one rude person in a church, and people conclude that Unity Baptist Church is rude. One person. And so we all have to choose to adopt a Chick-fil-A lifestyle of it's my pleasure. And even if you're mean to me, guess what I'm going to do? It's my pleasure. You're rude to me. It's my pleasure. Why? Because our goal is to glorify God and to be faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And for us, that's the gospel. why should people come to Unity Baptist Church? You know that you could, uh, just like with chicken sandwiches, you have to pass up a number of chicken chains to get to Chick-fil-A. You pass any number of, I want to say the count that I did was in this, just this region that we're in, 32 different Baptist churches you could have chosen to come to this morning. Why should you bother coming to Unity? You can get the gospel, I would, I would argue, it, probably most of those churches, hopefully good teaching of the word. Why would you come here? People want to continue to come to a church where not only can you hear the word God preached, where you can sing with your, you know, just with your whole heart and worship to God, where we're engaging our community, but I'd like to think that part of it is that they see the love of Jesus amongst us because the Bible itself says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples because you have love for one another. In fact, First Corinthians 13, before it gets into what love is, what does he say? Without love, I'm nothing. Even if I could speak with the tongue of men and angels, languages we know and languages we don't know, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. As a church, I don't care how pure our gospel is. I don't care how good the teaching of the Word of God is or how good our worship is or how pretty our building is or how many years we've been here. If this church doesn't have love, we may as well shut our doors because they can't see Jesus through the lack of love. We've got to be an it's-my-pleasure church Turn to Titus 3. This is a pastoral epistle. Paul is writing to Titus, who is struggling with his churches on Crete. By the way, Crete was a kind of a hick, backwoods, uh, kind of, if you will, in that neck of the, that region of the world, sort of a redneck kind of place. They were considered uh, uncultured. And it was a difficult place to plant churches for him. And Paul is writing to him, and he says, Titus, my true child in the faith, this is Titus 1, verse 4, my true child in a common faith. Evidently, Paul led him to the Lord. He says, this is why I left you in Crete. I can imagine here that Titus is having conversations with Paul saying, it's hard. (laughs) These people don't want to listen. They're rude. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained in order and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So every town that he goes and plants a church, he needs to set leadership in order, to set things in order so that the people will be loving and unified in carrying out the purpose of the gospel. And so this is a pastoral epistle. It's a letter that Paul wrote to those serving in pastoral ministry to tell them, here's what you need to be teaching your churches. Here's how you need to be running your churches. The first thing that he's going to give us that is a unifying element in the church is, number one, we need to teach people God's standards. There's a lot of standards out there, aren't there? There's the standards of my opinion. There's a standard of your opinion. There's a standard of what the church is doing down the road. And then there's God's standard. Sometimes those two are together. Sometimes they're not. So we need to teach people the standards of God because you can't truly have unity apart from an agreement that this is the final authority for what we do and nothing else. So in verse one, he says, Remind them, who's them? That's, that's the church. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good work. He, he begins by telling Titus, You've got a hard job and you're in a hard place, but the first thing you need to do as a pastor is you need to remind them. You need to preach, you need to teach the word, you need to hold fast to truth remind them to do what? He says, to be obedient and ready for, to submissive to authorities, be obedient and ready for every good work. We have to surround our our strategy and our unity has to be around the Word of God. Apart from the Word of God, we don't have unity. Apart from proper doctrine, we don't have unity. And so he says, preach to these people, remind them It makes me think of Ezekiel 37. Remember when God gave Ezekiel this vision of the valley of the dry bones? And there's just all these dead people everywhere. And God asked him, remember, son of man, can these bones live? And he's probably thinking, not with my power. And he sees all these dead bones, you know, and what does God command him to do to bring these dead bones into a live body that knows how to work together. Right now they're dead and they're scattered and they're not working together. How do we make those bones alive and how do we bring them together so that they work and live through the power of God? He told them prophesy or literally to preach over these bones. A prophecy is when you proclaim divine words, when God's word and his will, he says, preach to these people. Get the word of God into them. Again, this is a picture for how we do ministry. Get the Word of God into people so that, we can, so that the gospel, the life-transforming transform, power of the gospel gets into people so that they no longer act like the dead people outside the church, but they act like Jesus, who is alive. And then it'll bring them together so that they act as one. And then when God puts His Holy Spirit inside each person, it acts as the central nervous system connecting them to the head, Jesus, so that now those live people want what Jesus wants. They're not fighting for themselves. They're not fighting for their own desires. They're connected to the head. So when Jesus, the head, through the Holy Spirit goes, you need to do this, we jump in with our spiritual gift, and what do we do? We serve. That's the other, that's the other unifying element here, that they are, to be, they are to be submissive to their authorities, their rulers and authorities, is what he said. That sounds a lot like the verse we read last week, isn't it? Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. He's not talking about your governor. He's not even just talking about your mayor. He says he's talking about submit to the leaders who keep watch over your souls. Who is that? Those are the leaders right here in the church. He says, submit to them, to line up under them. doesn't mean you're less than them. It just means you're willing to work together. If you've ever been in marching band... I was. I was a band nerd. I'm sorry. Maybe I don't look like it. Yeah, I do. I was a band nerd. I played different instruments in band, trumpet, tuba, and baritone. And I'd be in there. And one thing that our band director always made sure that we did is that we submitted to his order for things. And so he's always telling us, if you had one of those blood and guts band directors and marching band, he'd always tell you, watch your diagonals. You know, he's he's like, be aware of how you're relating to other people. Make sure that you're not just doing your own thing. Yeah, marching down the street look where you are in relation to other people and submit, line up into the order that you've been given. doesn't make you less of a person. It just means that your marching band looks silly and sloppy and you don't accomplish much unless you're willing to follow the intended order for the marching band. He says says that he is to remind the church to be submissive too, that there's a certain God-prescribed order as we watch our diagonals in the church, as we submit and line up in the areas that we're supposed to. He says that he is to submit to the leaders of the church. These are the people in 1 Timothy 3 God calls elders. They are also called overseers, people who oversee the work of the church. And that's what a pastor does. He's to make sure, he's to remind them of what God's prescribed order and plan is. A pastor, can I just be very clear here? When you bring on a pastor of a church, you may not have known this when you voted one in, but anytime a church votes in a pastor, you're not just voting in an employee of the church. He's not just someone there that, well, we have a bunch of desires that we want our pastor to do, and you better do them because that's what we've asked you to do. A pastor is not simply an employee of the church to make sure that we please all of the expectations of the people. In fact, did you know the Bible specifically warns against that kind of a pastor? That kind of a pastor, by the way, who just wants to come in and make everybody happy is a hireling. His heart is not to follow God. His heart is not to lead you in the mission of God. His heart is to keep you happy so that his job stays secure. He doesn't really care about you. He ultimately cares about himself. Paul warned against just pleasing people. He said in Galatians 1.10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, what could he not be? A servant of Christ, he's saying you can't try to make God happy and seek to fulfill his word and his mission in the church and try to make sure everybody here is happy. Are you happy with me? Are you happy with me? What do you think I should be doing? What do you think we should Oh, you disagree with this? Let's change that. That kind of person is a hireling. They don't care what God wants for the church. They're not leading you in the mission of God. A pastor, when you call a pastor, you're calling somebody that you trust is directly linked to God, if you will, that uh, that he has a close relationship with Jesus, that he walks with him, that they are mature in the faith. And when you call a pastor, it is a choice to follow Hebrews 13, 17, which says, we are choosing to submit ourselves to the leaders that watch over our souls. When a church calls a pastor but refuses to follow the leadership that God has brought through them, friends, we are going outside of God's intended order for the church. We've got to be careful there. Number two, we need to make sure we let the gospel change how we speak to people. The gospel ought to change how we talk. Look in verse two. He says, here's something you need to remind your people of. He says, remind them to speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Pause. He's, he's talking about when was the time when we weren't this way? When were we speaking evil of everybody? When were we quarreling? When were we not gentle? When were we rude, not showing courtesy? When, when were we like that? It's before we were saved. He says, we once walked like that. We don't walk that way now. Jesus has changed how we do things. When did it change? He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Now, when God saves us, He doesn't just rescue us from hell. A lot of people, we have this idea that I come to church because I just don't want to go to hell. There's nobody here who wakes up in the morning and says, you know what? I really wouldn't mind trying hell out for a little bit. Nobody does that. But some people only use God as a means to get out of hell. They have no intention of making him Lord. But that's the very thing we do to get saved, is we confess Jesus as Lord, Romans 10.9. Now, the gospel, when we receive the gospel, it, he doesn't just save us from hell. He saves us from the power and the domineering presence of sin in our life. He saves us from having to just say things that are unkind or unhelpful to people. And so he says here, speak evil of who? Who do we speak evil of here in this church? What does your Bible say? It should be a good translation. It should say something like no one. Speak evil of nobody. Yeah, but this guy's a real jerk. He's unkind and he's rude. Speak evil of no one. Oh, but this person's been slandering me behind the scenes. Speak evil of no one. Well, I disagree with that guy. Speak evil of no one. I have the freedom of speech. Speak evil of no one. See, godly godly Christians, we limit our freedom of speech to what is beneficial and to what is edifying to other people. I can be upset with somebody and not have to act on it with my lips. Did you know, by the way, that when we choose not to speak evil of people, even when we're upset, it reveals the maturity of our hearts? How we use our tongue, James chapter 3 and verse 2 talks about how we use our tongue is a revelation of how mature we are. It's a billboard for our soul. I am spiritually mature, or I am very immature. That's what our words do. How we choose to use our words. Look what James says. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, what is he? He is a perfect man. It means to be complete. It's another word that means mature. If a man doesn't stumble in what he says, he is a mature, a fully mature individual, able also, it says, to bridle the whole body like a horse. You're bringing it under control. A broke horse isn't worth much to a cowboy. You're going to be in the dirt, okay? A horse that knows when to submit itself to its master is a very useful horse. But he's saying here, if you're able to bridle your tongue, to bring it under control, to serve our master, you're able to bridle the whole body. He is a perfect and complete, a mature man. So how can you tell if a person is spiritually mature? One of the most obvious and clear ways is look at how they use their tongue. Are they factious? Are they divisive? Are they angry? Are they complaining? Are they all of, you know, all the things that you know, we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, it's, it reveals that there are, there are spiritual immaturities in our life. What if, on the other side, you have somebody that, despite the fact that they're in pain, they just lost a loved one, maybe they just had surgery, they're going through financial trouble, they just, you know, went through a flood, or they just, they went through these hard times and still... They come to church, and they're wanting to meet my needs. And they're loving, and they're kind, and they're generous with their words. Even when people are rude to them, they won't speak evil of them. The Bible says in James 3, that's a mature man. And so if we want to be mature individuals, we can't ignore the things that we say to other people. He tells us to avoid quarreling, not to be eager to fight. He says, rather than quarreling, always fighting for what I want, Making sure that things are according to my expectations, he says, rather be gentle. It's a word that means to be yielding. Again, it's that word describing a horse that's been broken. I'm willing to yield my will to the Father, kind of like Jesus did at Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It means to be yielding. It's sort of like when you… We we express a yielding spirit in other areas of life, don't we? I hope you do. When you took driver's ed, what do they teach you? You have two cars, they pull up to an intersection… You and a guy on your right, and you stop roughly the same time. Who has right of way? Who gets to go first? Guy on the right. You know that. Very few other people in this community sometimes know that, right? You know what I'm saying? Um, you know that. Now, <clears throat> why? You're in a hurry. Why did you let that guy go first? You got places to go. He's just got his arm out the window, and he's listening to music. He's, got, he's not in a, in a hurry like I am. Why'd you let him go? Because the law tells you to. Why is it important that we all follow the law? Because if we don't, it's going, to make, it's going to create people. You ever have somebody not give you right away? How do, how do you feel about that person? Are you, are you praying for them? You praying for God's blessing? No, you're upset. You probably have a couple things to say about them. Okay, so when they do that, it creates anger. It creates division. It can create road rage. Worse yet, it can create a collision. In the church, we are to be in the same way. There is a law of God that says we are to be yielding to one another. Philippians 2 says that we are to esteem others as more important than ourselves, to look out not just for my own needs, but for the needs of everybody else, that we are to be yielding. Long before Ephesians 5 talks about wives submit to your husbands, what does it say? Submit yourselves one to another that we be yielding to people. You know what? This isn't that important. You go ahead. I don't mind if it goes this way. You go first. You have this. You have the last piece of pie. You know, as a church, we're a yielding people. That doesn't mean you're weak. Who else was yielding in life? Jesus. Was he weak? The man who drove entire groups of men out of the temple with a whip and turned over tables when they were sinning? Is Jesus weak? No, but he was yielding. Not my will, but yours. When you want to show true strength, it's not that we fight for what we want. It's that we're willing to yield and to put others before ourselves because that's what Jesus does. So we are to be gentle. And then he says, show perfect courtesy to all people. Okay? To show perfect courtesy means that I am contemplating how what I do affects you. If you perceive this as rude, I will change. Did you know when we, uh, we lived in China, you're going to hear China stories because i got plenty of them, all right? So get used to it. We moved to China, we were there for about 11 years, and when we first moved to China, we saw a number of habits that Americans might consider rude to them, okay? People stare, people point and laugh at you, because you're different, right? But I didn't realize that I also was importing things into Chinese culture that they considered rude. Did you know that? I, you know, Christian boy, went to Bible college, I tried not to be rude, but there were things I didn't realize was rude that were. Do you know what it was? It was Uh, using a toothpick in public without covering your mouth. So if you have Asian friends, I'm going to give you a little tip here. If you want to pull that toothpick out, you know, and Americans, we'll just sit there and chew on it after the meal or whatever, and we'll we'll just kind of pick our teeth. And as we're talking to people, no big deal for many people. But in Chinese culture, that's like the height of rudeness. And so what you will see Chinese people do, and it kind of took me back when I first saw it one time, they'll cover their mouth, and they'll pick their teeth in private. It's kind of... Is they're talking, oh, yeah, really, go on, tell me about your young boy, you know, and they, but you do that, and so, you know what, I've never done that before, but when I saw them do that, and when I was alerted that that's what's rude, considered rude to them, guess what I started doing? I covered anytime I used a toothpick. Why? I have a right to use a toothpick how I want. Well, if I want to be rude, yeah, sure, if I want to put myself before them, sure, I can do that, but if I want to be loving to the people around me in China, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to cover my mouth when I pick my teeth, because that's what they perceive as rude or impolite. So when we show perfect courtesy to all people, it means that I, I treat them a, way, a certain way, I speak to them a certain way that is good and beneficial for them, even if it may be me. Do I like to cover my mouth when I you know, use a toothpick? No, I think it's, it feels weird and unusual to me. But I'll do it for your sake. That's what we do as a church. We show perfect courtesy to all people. We weren't born this way, by the way, showing perfect courtesy to all people. Children aren't naturally courteous people. They have to be trained this way. Likewise, Christians aren't naturally courteous to other people, always doing what's best for you. We have to be trained this way. He says we were once foolish and disobedient. We used to behave that way. But now that we're regenerated by Jesus, renewed by the Holy Ghost, we choose to live a different way and speak a different way. Number three, we need to focus on serving God People who are serving together, it unifies them, doesn't it? I imagine those of you who have done uh, disaster relief trips and things like that, your chainsaw crews and whatnot, when you serve together, do you draw close to those people you serve closely with? You really do, don't you? When you do a project together with somebody, it brings you together. It unifies you. So in the church, the same thing applies. When you've got people, and we come here to church not just to sit and listen, not just to absorb, not just to say, well, who's going to talk to me today? But we come to church with the intention of serving, and we do this together. It unifies us as a body. Look at verse 8. It says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Again, trustworthy means this is inspired by God. This isn't Paul's opinion. This isn't Heath's opinion. This isn't anyone's opinion. This is God talking to us. This is trustworthy. He says, and, I, and he says, I want you to insist that they do it too. Who's they? It's the church. He says, I want you to insist on these things. I want you to teach this to the church so that all of us are playing by the same rules. It's no fun when people aren't playing by the same rules. He says, if we truly believe in God, what will we do? We will will devote ourselves to good works. We want to be in the game. We want to be using our activities, our, our abilities, our strengths, our talents, our spiritual gifts. We want to use it for God. We want to be giving something back to the God who gave everything for us. And when we do that together, it brings us together as a single body There's a quote that I read many, many years ago in a book by Max Lucado called The Eye of the Storm. And I read this probably 25 years ago, and it's the only Max Lucado quote that sticks in my head forever. But he said this. I want to read it to you. He said, when those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. When the energy intended to be used outside of the church, if you will, is used inside, the result is explosive. Instead of helping hands, we point accusing fingers. Instead of being fishers of the lost, we become critics of the saved. But note the other side of the fish tale: When those who are called to fish fish, they flourish. When does a church flourish? It's when we stop trying to point fingers, we stop trying to criticize, we stop complaining that things aren't the way I want them to be, and we just devote ourselves, devote ourselves to service. That's what I've come to do to this church, not to nitpick it, not to control it, not to, not to make everything according to my will, but to serve the church, to give my life as a living sacrifice to God. Now, there's some certain things that we can do that actually hinder that work of unity in a church. He talks about them in verse 9. He says, I want you to insist that this doesn't happen. He says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. How do you like knowing that the work that you're doing is worthless? Do you like being involved in worthless tasks? You ever feel like you've been assigned to a worthless task? You just, you just want to quit because you're like, this is, this is not worth my life. Okay, these are some things that aren't worth your life. In fact, they are worthless, the Bible says. They are going to harm the church. Let's make sure we don't do whatever these things are. Let's look at it. He says four things here. Foolish controversies. This is a Greek word that means philosophic argumentation you're not holding simply to what the Word of God says alone. You're talking about philosophies and ideologies and uh, traditions and things that are outside of God's Word. But we're going to argue over those things, not what the Bible says, but just my opinion about things. He says, don't argue about genealogies. You know, genealogies... uh, we need to talk about that a little bit this was posturing in the early church there were some in that early church who would trace their lineage all the way back in fact it was very important to a jew to be able to trace your lineage okay and to show who you're related to how you're how you're a part of the covenant people of god and so some of them would trace their lineage so that they could boast in their lineage oh did you know that i have so and such in my lineage great rabbi maybe you've heard his name he's in my lineage Oh, but maybe you don't realize that uh, my lineage includes all these people. And so you had people posturing in, the, you know, in this early church over their genealogy, trying, well, I am more important than you. I have more say than you because of the people that I am related to. Can that ever happen in a church today? Maybe you're not bringing up your family tree, you know. But uh, what are we doing? Sometimes we will posture ourselves based upon our lineage. Well... My family has been going to unity for three different generations. I myself have been in unity for 75 years or I don't know what, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is, and we, we can posture ourselves. And what are we trying to say when we use lines like that? I have more say about what happens in this church than you do because my family has been here longer. This is genealogy, genealogical argumentation. It has no place in the Bible, does it? Not according to Titus. We don't argue. There is no seniority in the body of Christ. There are simply roles that God has called us to fulfill. He says, also avoid dissensions. This just is a word that means that you love strife. You just enjoy the argumentation of it. It doesn't even matter what you're arguing. You met people like this? If you say something is up, they just take the opposite all the time. Oh, well, I think that's down. Well, I think it's left. Well, I think it's right. You know? And they're just always on the other side because they love, they just love the, the fight of it. It's like going out to uh, pawn shops with my father-in-law. Maybe you met him last week, Gary Myers. Anyway, he loves to collect knives. Now, this man probably has 3,500 knives at home. He doesn't need more knives. Why is he shopping for knives at pawn shops? Because he loves the thrill of the hunt. He likes to get there and go, I don't know. Hey, look at this knife. It's kind of old and beat up. I don't know. That. You're asking 20. I'll give, you, uh, I'll give you 12, 1250 for it. You know, I don't know, I can go 1250. I'm going to go, I I, I might be able to go down to 18. I don't think so. I might be able to go 13, but man, look at this thing here. He just loves just the thrill of the debate. Okay, it's okay if you're doing that when you buy knives at a pawn shop. It's not okay when we just love to debate and to argue things in the church and we just become divisive people. He also talks about quarrels about the law, okay? We're not talking about the law of God here. We're talking about, human laws. We're talking about oral traditions. Oral traditions, by the way, the Jews put them right on level with the Bible. They believed that these oral traditions came directly from God, and so they, they would argue over oral traditions from some rabbi from years ago like they would be arguing from the Bible itself. He says, we don't quarrel about the law, we don't quarrel about past opinions. We don't elevate what past leaders, some guy you heard on the radio, some guy you watch on TV, or even a previous pastor here at Unity or any other church you've been to, they are not our authority. And can I tell you right now, I'm not your authority either. What is our authority together? It's the Word of God. That's the only thing that's going to unify us. We can't, don't, you know, some, I get hit by a turnip truck and die. Don't be quoting Heath to anybody that comes back here in the church. I'm not your authority. The Word of God is. Likewise, we don't argue over debates on oral traditions and laws that are passed on. This is the only standard we have. Jesus always ran into trouble with that, though, didn't he? If you read in Matthew 15, uh, it says, verse 1, The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. They, They traveled to see Jesus because they had a bone to pick. They said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? for they do not wash their hands when they eat." Now, Jesus and his disciples, it's not that they weren't hygienic, right? Because there's certain hygienic laws that they would naturally follow. But it's not the laws of the Bible, not the Bible's laws of hygiene that Jesus was breaking. Whose laws was Jesus and his disciples breaking? What does that verse say? The traditions of our elders. These are past rabbis in the past who said, this is how you're supposed to do things. It's not enough to say the Bible says, wash your hands before you eat. <clears throat> they had a tradition, they would have a two-handled cup. And you would first pour once and then twice on your right hand. Then you would grab the other one. You'd pour once and then twice on your left hand. If you're a Hasidic Jew today, it's three times. And you would do that, and then you would always pray the exact same prayer before you eat a meal with bread. That was the qualification. If it was a meal with bread, you had to, say it. You had to follow this order. And then you would lift up your hands to the sky and say, Blessed are you. Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us concerning the washing of hands, now you can eat. And that process was repeated by the, the largest number of Jews for the longest time. Jesus and his disciples didn't follow that rule. Why? Because it's not in the Bible. But we've been doing it this way forever, Jesus. It's the way it's supposed to be done. Do you know there's sometimes that we can do something for a long time, long enough that it feels like it's the only right way to do it, but it's not necessarily Right? I'm going to reveal a little weakness of me to you. Can I do that? I don't know how to type very well. In high school, I got really, really great grades, except for typing. And mind you, this is before we had computers. This is when we did typewriters. Any of you guys take typewriter class? And typing, I got a D+. I was really bad. You know. And Mr. Al Randall's banging that yardstick, Hey, 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 you know. And I, I hated the class. And so I learned to type with these six fingers right here. I almost never use these other fingers. Yes, I know it's wrong. But it's how I've learned to do things. And I can get by with just kind of doing that. And it feels right to me because I've done it for so many years. But then I decided, you know what? Maybe I'm going to help improve my typing. And I bought a, a program at that time called Mavis Beacon, Beacon Teaches Typing. And I got there and she's like, put your hand like this. I'm like, oh, this feels so wrong. And she's like, now hit this with this key. Oh, it just felt so wrong. I'll oh, just let me go back to my six fingers because it works. It's just what I'm used to. It's what I'm you know, accustomed to. Just let me just use these six fingers. This, forget Mavis Beacon. What does she know? Problem is, I can't do 100 words a minute or 60 words a minute. I, but it feels right to me. Sometimes in a church, we can be the same way. We have weaknesses we don't know that we have because we've always been doing things a certain way. Not because it's right, but because it's how we've always done it. Like the laws that Jesus and his disciples that were foisted upon them. It feels right, but it's not necessarily biblical. And so sometimes we have to listen to Mavis Beacon, tell me that I'm doing it wrong, so that we can get our hands in the right position, so that we can type 100 words a minute instead of like, you know, 35, you know, which is probably about where I'm at. He said, throughout all this, Paul told Titus that they should avoid controversy. We should want to not run into it, but avoid it. It means to step around something as opposed to running right through it. If you saw a snake in the road while you're jogging, you're not going to run over that snake. Well, I think I, can, I think I can leap over that guy. No, you're going you're to walk around that snake, aren't you? My wife would run the opposite way. But we're to, that's how we're to be with controversy in the church. We try to avoid going straight into it. But sometimes you have to, number four, be willing to confront disunity. Unity in a church, I don't know if you've noticed it, unity in a church is just like unity in your home. Does it happen accidentally? Do you just stumble your way into unity with your mate? No, you choose to suck it up and do the right thing by your mate, even when you have an argument. It's the same thing with the church. We've got to be able to face like you do in your marriage, like you do on your job. We've got to be willing to face disunity head on. Have moral courage to do the right thing. Listen to what he says in verse 10. As for the person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, do you see that? There's direct engagement. We don't just go, well, (laughs) I'm I'm pretending I don't see any division in the church. I'm just going to kind of pretend it's there. Somebody will deal with it. Surely God doesn't want me dealing with it. He says, when we have somebody who is stirring up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Stirring, these people in Titus's churches, they were stirring up division. They're just causing trouble. They're, they're trying to make people angry. What does he say to do to them? He says, warn them once or twice. We're going to talk a little bit about what that means. It, ultimately, he's talking about church discipline. But he says, the people who stir up division, people, uh, you have a church that's supposed to be one body, but they're trying to divide it up into us and them, okay? When you have people who are trying to always talk about us and them, oh, that staff. I don't know about that staff. What does that staff think they're doing? Oh, those deacons, that deacon bot I don't even know what they say in their deacons meetings. Oh, those deacons, and they're creating an us and them dichotomy. Or, you know, that Sunday school class, I can't believe that Sunday school class. Or, you know, those young people, what those people are always doing. I don't really, the youth, and what are we doing? We're talking about each other in the church as different factions of people. We can't be an us-them mentality in the church. We have to be a one. It's us. It's not us and them. It's just us. But he had people who were creating us-them dichotomies in the church to be factious. He describes those people, when they are factious, they're creating division and sowing discord and complaining and just causing trouble in the church. What is he, what is he, how does he describe them? These are not fun words. I don't even want to read it, but I will because it's in the Bible. He says those people are warped and sinful. Warped means something that is completely pulled out uh, from what it's supposed to be. It it's, describes a tree Maybe there was a flood, maybe there was a tornado. It's been completely ripped out from its roots. That tree is completely uprooted. It's going to die. It's not useful as a tree any longer. It's uprooted. Or it describes something that's been turned inside out. Have you ever seen a bad traffic accident? A car has been turned inside out. You can't drive that home. It's not useful. It's not productive anymore. It's warped. It's, it's, tw- it's, it's a twisted version of what God intended for it to be. God is saying that factious people, rather than being one, which is what God intended, when they're they're dissenting, he says they're warped. They're twisted out of shape from what God intended us to look like. Furthermore, he says that they are self-condemned. Again, he says after warning them once or twice, have nothing to do with them. That sounds rude, doesn't it? I mean, to most of us, that sounds rude. Like, I can't believe a church would have nothing to do with somebody. Are there damaging elements to some churches that need to be dealt with? There are. The Bible talks about that some come into churches as wolves in sheep's clothing. Do we ignore the wolves in sheep's clothing? We cannot. It would be to value the wolf over the lives of all the sheep that are here. And so we have to have the moral courage to face disunity when we see it. Yes, it's difficult. Church doesn't want to do that any more than a parent doesn't like giving discipline to their kid, but my dad wore out my hide, and I, for one, am thankful for it. So he says warn them once, warn them twice. He's talking about Matthew 18. Go to that person alone. If he doesn't listen to you, take two or three witnesses, not to gang beat them, but to make sure that we establish every word so it's not like, well, I said this, well, you said that, well, I said this, and we can't confirm anything. And then if it's still they're still not repentant, goes all the way to the church. At that point, it says have nothing to do with them. They're removed from church membership. That sounds harsh, right? How could a church ever do that? I'm mad at the church for doing something like that. How does Titus describe that person? They're self-condemned. They brought this on themselves. Their continual dissension brought that on themselves. And so, as a church, we are called to warn them once, to warn them twice. It means that all of us as a church, if we're gonna be unified, we all have to work together for unity. If just one or two of us are doing it, it's not going to work. We have to be working together. The majority of us have to be seeking unity with one another. So I'm going to give us just a couple of things that we can do. A, let's, as a church, refuse to be an accomplice to gossip, negativity, sowing discord, backbiting, complaining, whatever whatever you want to use there. Let's refuse to be an accomplice. What does it look like to be an accomplice? Somebody comes up to you on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening, and they just say, Boy, I sure hate this, that's this, and I'm so mad about this. Can you believe this? Huff, huff, huff. And they're just mad about something. When we just sit and listen to that, we feel, a lot of times we just feel like, well, you know, I'm just being a good friend. I'm not participating in the gossip. I'm not doing anything negative or wrong. Do you know what the Bible says? It says both the person who's sinning with their tongue and the person who's listening to that sinning with their tongue, both are guilty. Look at Proverbs 17:14. An evildoer listens to wicked lips. And a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. An evildoer listens to wicked lips. He's saying that both the person sinning with their tongue and the person willing to give them a safe space to share this negativity and evil, God holds both of them accountable for what's happening right there. It would be kind of like this. I don't do drugs, I don't make drugs, I don't sell drugs, but here's what I do do. I allow those guys to set up a meth lab in my basement and to make all the drugs there. I don't do it, I just allow them to be in my basement. Sheriff, is that going to work for you? Is that, is, are, is that person guiltless? You know, they know it's happening, they're providing them a safe haven there. At the very least, they're going to get called in for questioning, Friends, when we have gossip and negativity happening in the church and we provide them safe harbor for that, the Bible says it's an evildoer that listens to wicked lips. We can't even allow safe harbor. Hey, so, so what do we do? We can't just be like, oh, he's, he's gossiping. Let me flee the scene, okay? We can't do that, but what could we do in a loving way? Say, you know what, friend? I, from what I can hear, you're going through a very difficult and painful thing, and I'm really sorry that you're dealing with such pain right now and you may have a good cause, but I just want to tell you, I'm not part of that solution. Who might you talk to about this? See, what you've done now is you've taken just a time of complaining and backbiting, and you've converted it into a productive conversation. I want you to hear this. After last week's message about complaining, we're not saying that you have to agree with everything the church does. In fact, I'm glad when people do disagree, and they bring new information to us. It helps us grow. When you take something you disagree with or something you don't like and you take it to the person responsible, that's not complaining. That's a productive conversation. That's like uh, Aquila and Priscilla going to Apollos and saying, hey, you're teaching wrong about the baptism of John. That's a productive conversation. We applaud that. If you disagree with something in this church, we want you to speak up to the right people. You say, well, I don't know who I'm supposed to talk to about this. Can I tell you, it's not usually too hard to figure out who to talk to. I don't like the music we're doing on Sunday mornings. I think it ought to look like this or sound like this. Who do you talk to? Theron. Why? He's the minister of music. I don't like something that's about going on with the the musicians up here or the sound or the... You could probably talk to Theron, maybe Brad. He does some with the uh, sound up there. I don't like what's going on with the youth. I don't like what's going on with the education program. Something's wrong with my, you know, the Sunday school system we're doing. Talk to Brad. I think our Sunday school class needs to be this and this and this. Who do you talk to? Your Sunday school teacher. It's not real hard to figure out who to talk to. When you love a person enough that you want to seek a productive conversation, you'll figure out who to talk to. And if you don't know who to talk to, call the church office. We'll be happy to point you to who to talk to. But we don't just want... Dis, you know dissent going on in the background, we want to redirect you to a productive conversation. I would, even argue, I would even argue this. B, when you overhear people complaining, gently confront them. Boy, this is a tough one. I know, I know. But hear me out. Let's say, you. let's create a scenario here. You're walking into church and you hear people complaining in the lobby. And you can hear that they're grumbling and they're mad about something. If you can hear it, who else can hear it? visitors, maybe lost people. Let's say you're a lost person and you came to church and you're begging God to show you the gospel. You're just you're discouraged and you need answers in life and you hear people complaining in the church. What's your first thought? Boy, this is where I wanna be. When we grumble and we complain and we do it audibly in front of other people, it harms the people around us, doesn't it? Or maybe we're sitting here in the church service, we're waiting for church to start, and, you know, maybe you're just looking through the bulletin, and you can overhear people behind you or around you just grumbling and backbiting and sowing discord. Does that set your heart in a good place to worship? No, it doesn't. What can we do about that? You got one of two choices. One is ignore it and just pray that somebody else will address it or hope it goes away. Or number two, we can lovingly confront. And I say lovingly. We don't be mean. Who do you think you are talking like that in the church? A house of God. You know, we don't do that. The Bible says that when we see someone overtaken in a trespass, Galatians 6 1 says, You who are spiritual, by the way, those are the people who make a difference. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness and fear. So spiritual people confront disunity, but you have to be a spiritual person to do it, you have to care enough about God's house to deal with it. And then when you do, it says do it with meekness and love. It means when you go to that person, you don't make accusations. I can't believe you're talking like that around here. We do it in love. Hey, brother, sister, I couldn't help but overhear that you've got some real concerns. But if I can hear your concerns, other people can too. I would encourage you to maybe find the person to talk to. Let's make this into a productive conversation. Let's protect the ears of those who are visiting the church. So they don't just come here to the house of God expecting to see love in the gospel and they hear complaining or grumbling. Okay? We can do that as individuals. You don't have to be a pastor to do that. All you have to do is Galatians 6.1. You just have to be a spiritual person because you care more about God and his glory than just being comfortable. Are we supposed to go directly to people? What we're asking you to do, go directly to the person to have a productive conversation. Is that biblical? Matthew 18, Jesus says It's biblical. What does he tell us? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So somebody sinned against you, you have an offense, you have a disagreement, there's some kind of friction. What are we supposed to do? It says, "You need to go to him and tell him his fault. Tell him what's wrong. It says, "Between who? You and him alone." Those are important words. When we are seeking love, remember the Bible says, "Love covers a multitude of sins." What it means is that we don't try to air everybody's dirty laundry. Hey, everybody, look over here! Look over here! Look, look what Joe Dixon did to me! I'm so mad at him! Look at this! That's not love. Love says, Phew. "I've got an issue with Joe, but guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go directly to Joe. And I'm going to talk to him. Why? Because I love Joe. I don't want to hurt Joe's name here. I love Joe." We just have a little hiccup here. And so when I'm loving, I'm going to try to keep it between him and me. And if I have an issue with Joe, you'll never know about it. That's when you know you have a spiritual person, that's when you know you love somebody. Love covers a multitude of sins. And so when we have a problem, we have a complaint, we have a disagreement, we don't just go out over lunch letting the entire community hear how much Unity Baptist Church loves to gripe. We don't just go out there and get on a phone and talk to all of our friends hey, can you believe this is happening? I'm so mad. Love covers a multitude of sins. It keeps it it between them. You go and tell him his his fault between you and him alone. And I'm going to insert something here that may be difficult for you to hear. When we have an issue, we have a complaint, we have a problem, I don't want you going straight to a deacon and giving him an earful. There are several reasons why. I'm going to give you, here, let's begin micro-sermon on why we don't complain to our deacons. Okay? And it's going to be micro I know what time it is. Here's why we don't complain to deacons, and I know, by the way, that there's many who have been taught that that's what deacons are here for. Deacons are the complaint box of the church. Can I give you a few reasons why I'm asking you, don't beat up our deacons with complaints. The first reason is this, it's not biblically mandated. I know that the motive was to, we got to protect the pastor because there's so much, you know, there's always people bringing in difficulty and trouble in church. We got to protect our pastor. Can I tell you, I thank you for that heart and spirit. I I do thank you. But this isn't going to be how we do it, and I'll show you why in a minute. But it's not biblically mandated. You say, oh, yeah, Acts 6, there was problems in the church, and they brought in deacons. But look back at Acts 6. How was that problem dealt with? There was somebody who had a problem. The widows weren't being fed. They went directly to the elders of the church. The elders said, we don't have time to take care of all the individual needs of the church, so what do we need? We need people who are gifted in the areas of service, who are godly, that we can trust, to take care of delivering food to these older ladies. And it says, and the people were pleased. Why did the tension go from here to here? Was it because the people are like, and thou shalt go to thy deacon and give him an earful? No. Why did the tension go from up here to down here? Because the needs were met. Through what? Through service. As a church, I can't get to everybody here. We have several hundred people that call this church home and come from time to time when it's not raining. And so I can't get to everybody. I can't be at every hospital. I can't be at every sickness. I can't, I can't remember to call everybody or to notice every time you have an anniversary or birthday. I can't physically do that. Even if I did it full time as, as just a chaplain, I couldn't get to it all. So guess what? We have deacons here, and what do they do? They serve you. So they, they visit you in the hospital. They pray for you. They Uh, They encourage you. If you have needs, I can't pay the bills. I'm struggling with my marriage. You can talk to deacons about things like that. What don't we do? I'm mad. I'm mad, and here's why I'm so mad at you guys. And you deacons think you're all that, and we we don't do that to our deacons. Furthermore, you're going to wear them out. Remember last week's message when the people complained. How did Moses feel? If you're going to treat me this way, Lord, kill me and take my life. That's how our deacons. You're going to second guess. Should I ever be a deacon? If that's what I'm going to be, is just, uh, just put Everlast on me. I'm just a punching bag for the church. <laughs> here's what I hate and here's what I hate. We're going to wear our deacons out. Here's a couple other reasons. B, people are more likely to complain when they're hiding behind a deacon. I'm telling you that right now. I've been in churches that have had it both ways, where people are encouraged to directly talk to people about their issues or if we go through a deacon. When there's anonymity, does contention increase or decrease? I don't know, go on the internet. I'm I'm not even joking. Go to any controversial YouTube video and then look under the comment section underneath. You know, whether it's, you know, Jamie Lester talking to somebody, he's going to be polite in company. But if he, at home, he can go home and be, I don't know, G.I. Joe 87, you know, and nobody knows who he is. And so if Jamie wanted to, he won't because he's a good guy. But if he wanted to, he could just be very mean and scathing. Why are people more mean online? Why do we have a term called the internet troll? It's because there's anonymity. I never have to face my accuser, those that I accuse and hostility increases it doesn't decrease are is there anywhere in the bible that you can see where we're supposed to complain and backbite in anonymity nowhere nowhere if you have fault with a brother what do we do we take our issue to him matthew 5:23 to 24 jesus says the exact same thing you're at church right he says if you're offering your gift at the altar okay it's part of your church worship You've got to give to God. He says, but you're there, and remember that your brother has something against you. Okay, You aren't even at fault. You just know that he's mad at you. So it doesn't matter, by the way, whether you're mad at them or they're mad at you. If you know there's something between you, you initiate it. He says, before you even worship, he says, leave the altar, go, and be reconciled to your brother. Once again, go directly to your brother, reconcile with him and then come worship God. He's saying that if we're, as Christians, we're harboring bitterness and anger and resentment in our heart, and we're not going to our brother over it, our worship is inauthentic. Our worship isn't real. Oh, God, I love you. Oh, I hate that guy. Boy, he really gets under my skin. I love you, Lord. Here's my offerings. I'm such a good Christian. No, he's saying... Don't tell me that you love God but hate your brother. In fact, in 1 John, he's going to say, if you say, I love God but hate my brother, he says, the love of God is not in you. Beloved, let us love one another because love is of God and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that does not love, what? Does not know God. Love is what defines us. And so we go to them individually. And the last thing I'm going to say here is this. The pastor still has to deal with the same complaints. When a complaint, let's just look at this scenario. I'm mad. I go to my deacon, and I speed bagging my deacon over there. Yeah, Yeah, and here's what, I'm mad about that too. All right, you take that. Okay? And that's how we treat our deacons. When we do that, guess what the deacon does? Hey, pastor, guess what? We have some people that are mad. It still comes to me. But now, what have you done? You've robbed me of my ability to obey the word of God. What did Matthew 5:22 just tell me to do? If you know that your brother has a problem with you, you'd what? Go to him directly and be reconciled. When a deacon comes to me with a problem and says, bling, bling, "Pastor, I've got some people who are mad, and here's the checklist of all the things that they're angry about." Well, who's upset? Well, I can't really tell you about that. What have you just done? You have prevented me from being able to obey Scripture. Now I know that somebody's upset with me, but what can't I do? I can't reconcile. I can't make it right. You have people hiding behind a deacon, you know, throwing these rocks over at people, and I can't even find out who the rock thrower is. And by the way, those of you who I have talked to in the church, are we mean to you? No, we're not. Here's what what you're going to hear. If you come and talk to me directly, here's what you're going to hear from me. Hey, I've seen this. I've sent that there's some tension there, maybe some questions that you have. I want to give you a venue, an opportunity right here to ask any question you want. I want to hear your concerns. I want to hear your, uh, the, the issues or your disagreements. I want to hear because we love you. That's what you're going to hear from me if you ever come to me directly. I'm not going to accuse you. I'm not even going to tell you that you're wrong for thinking that unless it's overtly unbiblical. But friends, when we... When we take our complaints to the deacon, and the deacon prevents me from even knowing who's upset with me, I can't obey God's word. I know a brother has aught with me, but I can't go to him. Let's not do that. And as in closing here, furthermore, if you just want a story and illustration of what happens when you use an intermediary like a deacon here, read 2 Samuel chapter 15. Read the story of Absalom. If you remember Absalom, he was the son of King David, wasn't he? And King David, he had his own issues. He committed adultery. He was an accessory to murder, you know, conspiracy to murder, and all these other things. And he did some bad things. And because of his sins, he did not hold his children to much of a moral standard. And so within his own home, we see Amnon with his half-sister Tamar, and he rapes his half-sister. David himself, being an adulterer, didn't really do much about it. So guess what? Another one of his children, Absalom, said, this ain't right. And so Absalom killed his brother Amnon. And so there's just all kinds of trouble in David's home. And this just began this disrespect that Absalom had for his father, David. Eventually, it came to the place where Absalom was ready to full-on rebel against David. Do you know what step one for Absalom to rebel against David was? He went to the gates of the city, 2 Samuel 15. It says he goes to the gates of the city, and that's often where people would come and go through to get to the king to try to air their complaints and their problems, and he would go there and he'd see a guy come along and say, hey there, Jimmy, what's going on? What have you got here today? Well, I'm on my way to see the king. He's always busy, but man, he says, no, 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 no. Come on over here. Oh, I hear your complaint. Your complaint is just if I were king, <laughs> if only I had the power to do so, you know, I would help you out, Jimmy, that king, he's got issues, but you know, I'd, I'd help you out. And it says day by day by day, Absalom went in between the king and the people. And he intercepted all of their complaints that they had with the king. And you know what eventually it says in 2 Samuel 15? It says, and Absalom stole the hearts of the people. And you read later on how that story ends, what happens? Absalom gathers a large crowd of people that were supportive of him, and they came in. And David and his men, the people that were devoted to him, they fled into the wilderness. And now you have a nation divided over these people because we didn't solve conflict in the proper way. What I'm asking us to do as a church is not put our deacons into the seat of Absalom. If people have an issue with Theron, let them go directly to Theron. But when you do, by the way, can I just say, be polite, ask questions. The Bible says, he who who speaks before he hears, to him it is a folly and a shame. We want to allow them to speak. Let me hear. I may be misunderstanding what I'm seeing here. I may be assuming. I may be jumping to conclusions. So I'm going to go to Theron, and I'm going to ask him, Theron, I saw this and this, and I think it's this way. It's how it feels to me, but I want to hear from you. Help me to understand. That's how we approach people, politely, with love, seeking restoration. We ask questions. If they would have only done that with David, we could have avoided a full-scale, not church split, (laughs) nation split, so let's don't put our, our deacons into the seat of Absalom. This morning, all I'm doing as we close is I'm asking our church to live up to its name. People go out here and they see the sign that says Unity Baptist Church. I want them to come in the doors and discover that it's true that we are a unified people, that we are committed to God's word, we're committed to doing it God's way, we're committed to one another. We address one another when there is disunity. Whether I'm mad at you or you mad at me, I don't care. I'm gonna be a spiritual individual and I'm gonna to go to you and I'm going to reconcile you. And Jesus says when we go to our brother and tell him our fault to him alone, he says, behold, you have won your brother. You know, people can get a chicken sandwich at just about any place here in Ashland. They can go to church just about any place here in Ashland. I'd like, them to, I'd like to think that anytime people walk through the doors of Unity Baptist Church, they're going to be able to come here, and they'll get it's-my-pleasure kind of service, that they're going to get folks that love them, people that will hug their neck, people that will encourage them, people that will be interested in them. And even when we hurt one another, they're going to discover that we resolve our conflict in a biblical and holy way. I'd love to see Unity Baptist Church be a safe haven for those who have been out there in the world, maybe out there in divisive and factious churches even, and they come into Unity and say, wow, wow. I've never been to a church that was so friendly, so unified, so loving. If people can get that kind of service at a Chick-fil-A, surely, as the people of God in a church, we can give them that kind of service here. Would you commit yourself to doing things God's way with me in giving people an it's-my-pleasure kind of service here at Unity Baptist Church? Our Father, we thank you this morning as we study your word. We're grateful that these rains have... Lesson to a degree. We pray for those who are hurting and suffering in other parts of uh, eastern Kentucky. But God, I'm, I'd like to also pray for just those who are here this morning who might be hurting and suffering. Maybe they have a genuine complaint. They're in their heart, they feel hurt, they disagree, maybe they feel left behind. God, I pray that you would give each one of us the moral courage. To do what Jesus told us to do and to go directly to the person involved, not just to complain, but to have a productive conversation with people. That as a church, we would seek unity with one another, that we would seek love with one another, and that our end goal wouldn't be just to win an argument, not just to win a debate, but that we might win our brother over, that we might be reconciled. Father, it's my prayer that we would fulfill Jesus' prayer request in John 17. As he prayed for all of us who would believe in him through his name, that they would all be one, even as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one, that we would be one in you. And in so doing, we remember the words of our Lord who has saved our soul, who said that they may believe that you have sent me. I pray that as they observe how we relate to one another, how we speak to one another, that people will be able to see truly that Jesus is Lord because he's Lord of my life and he's changed. he's changed me, he's changed how I live, he's changed how I speak to people. Unify us as one body together that the world might believe that Jesus is Lord. We ask this together as a church and as a single body and as a single voice we say amen.
0: From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland.